Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Aggressor Adventures. For over 35 years, we've designed adventure vacations around the world, helping travelers experience the majesty of the oceans and the call of the wild on our dive trips, river cruises, and safaris. From the Galapagos Islands and the South Pacific to the land of the pharaohs on the Nile River, with personalized service in every vacation destination. Aggressor. Adventures of a Lifetime. You're surviving life. With Les Stroud. I'm working on jealousy. I'm not into hate. I'm working on anger. Because I'm not into rage. Go ahead and do this. Google Terry O'Reilly. If you do, Invariably, what will pop up first is a famous hockey player for the Boston Bruins. A Canadian, of course, because, well, all great hockey players are born in Canada. But I digress. Because I'm not talking about the six foot one, 200-pound ice bruiser and captain of the Boston team. I'm talking about another giant. A giant in the world of marketing, and more specifically, advertising. Throughout my life, I have gravitated towards great storytellers, be it songwriters or radio hosts or filmmakers. I love a great storyteller. There are only a few who are utterly amazing and compelling, and Terry O'Reilly, the radio host, not the hockey player, is right up there at the top of the list. For years, he has hosted radio shows for CBC in Canada, such as O'Reilly on Advertising, Age of Persuasion, and currently, his podcast, Under the Influence, which has hit over 50 million downloads. And why? Because of Terry's brilliant storytelling, all backed up by an insane amount of research. What he has to tell you about advertising will absolutely have touched a part of your own life sometime, somehow, and often profoundly. This is a five-part interview, because when Terry and I get talking, aided by just a touch of fine scotch, we are not going to stop for some time. So I've split it up into five segments, where we meander through a series of compelling subject matters. In this, my final part of my two-hour chat with Terry O'Reilly, we finally discuss his new and fascinating book, My Best Mistake. Do yourself a favor and pick this book up and be inspired. We also take on, just a little bit, cultural appropriation, and Terry's all-time favorite commercials. To set the stage, we were sitting on my deck with a roaring outside fire. In case you're wondering what all that crackling is, with the sun setting on a small Ontario lake. These are the words of Terry O'Reilly. The true answer to that question is the creative department has to reflect the real Canada. Because then you have everybody weighing in on the scripts, as opposed to a white guy presuming what, somebody from 
Japan or Indonesia might want to hear or, or, or the language they might want to listen to. Where the leaves are blowing Where the stars are glowing Where their lights are shining through That you'll get to a point where if you then peel the mistake like a banana that at the heart of the of the mistake is the solution at the heart of the mistake is the opportunity that will get you out of there ask you an off-color question what do you think of the what everybody's referring to as the cancel culture today yeah that 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 is interesting because in the cancel culture world we live in right now the era the zeitgeist people may not give you a chance to have a second chance because that's all about mistakes this is all about mistakes and all about second chances even the the subhead is epic fails and silver linings you may not even get a silver lining in this zeitgeist right now I can think it it's a case by case basis less it depends what the mm. the infraction is and how you handle it and do you own it and there's a lot going on in the in the zeitgeist right now. Unfortunately, case by case. I, I, I always get frustrated when it's case by case because then you have to stay on your toes so diligently through everything. I was recently, yesterday, I was filming a, for the new Survivor Man VR. There's a game coming out, Survivor Man I VR. I saw that, yeah. So I was doing my motion capture suit and I they wanted me to say something and I said something, but within the scope of what I was saying, I said the word mankind. Right. And lovely lady there, script lady, said something about, well, no, it was really great, except for that incredibly vile, to say, she said something like very cutting. So, but me being me said, okay, well, we got to do another take. And so as soon as I did the other take, I said, womankind, I said, better, is that better? Her name was Leslie too. I said, is that better, Leslie? And so she was, so I had her laughing right. out of my, uh, my sexist faux pas. And I was very careful. Interestingly enough, they had stuff in there of their own scripting later that I called them on. Cause it's like, okay, I can't say this here. <laughs> you guys understand this is not something I can say over here. And I, Oh yeah, you're right. Good point. I said, so you see, I think we're all learning as we go along. I remember I said something in one of my shows recently. I, I said the peanut, no, actually it was a, it was a, an Instagram post. I was writing in my office and my daughter's dog was keeping me company. I said, and I just uh, posted a picture of him and I said, comments from the peanut gallery. And then I got attacked on Instagram because apparently peanut gallery is uh, a racist term. And I, they tried to explain it to me on, on Instagram. But anyway, the point being, I did not know. I've yeah, heard that yeah, term my whole life. For, for anybody who can't see me right now, my, my face is scrunched up. I'm trying to, I didn't know that either. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you, you want to be, you want to be aware of, as you said in one of the, or was it uh, Strombo said in your episode that, you know, if someone does blackface, it's not what Strombo's opinion was. It's it's someone who's black or brown's opinion. That's the opinion we all have to listen to, right? This comes, this you've, you've segued beautifully into a question that we don't really need to, I may not even keep it in this interview, but I want it for my own sake. And it comes back to something that you were accused of actually, but but that I've been accused of. And even with my new series, Wild Harvest, I'm dancing around it. You told me about the time where you were explaining about your favorite movie and your favorite movie being, uh, one of your favorite movies being The Party with Peter Sellers, right. who wore brown face and, right. and did all of that. And then the guy said, well, you know, but that's an incredibly 
culturally uh, appropriated. And you realized, oh crap, it is, isn't it? Okay, but my question point is cultural appropriation. How do you and I, people within the scope of this kind of business, this entertainment, media, storytelling business, how do we maintain our interest in a subject matter dealing with, say, First Nations, our desire to be an ally without just instantly being accused of being of cultural appropriation? A very good question, Les. I think it means you have to do your homework as best you can. I think you have to listen to the groups that want to be heard, that have not had a chance to be heard forever, like indigenous groups. And then I think you just have to, you have to somehow contextualize it in your work. I think you have to, I think you just have to do the homework. You have to put in the time to understand it. And it's, it may be a long road to understand it. But how do we, sorry to challenge you on this, but yeah, yeah. but then how do we deal with the criticism of it that itself is unresearched, usually, ironically, going to be, I'll be really blatant here, but probably a, a middle-aged a uh, white person from Toronto <laughs> accusing you of cultural appropriation to something to do with, say, First Nations or Indigenous cultures. Like, okay, first of all, you're not the person to be leveling this at me. And second of all, you haven't researched even what it is I'm doing. I'm seeing that more and more. Right. And I'm wondering how to how to deal with it. You're in media and you write ad copy. Yep. I'll bet if we went back on all the commercials you've written there's cultural inappropriation somewhere in there that you, you wouldn't have even thought of at the time. If, if we really took a look and be like, oh. Could be, yeah. Prob- that's probably something you'd never say today, Terry, right. kind of thing, right. kind of moment, right? Right. And I'm struggling with it as a musician, yep. as a writer, and also because I've spent so much of my life working with First Nations people, right. learning from them, training with them, training them. And even with my series, Wild Harvest, I teach wild edible plants, which is a back ancestry. right. Of all of us, right. not just First Nations, but right. it gets construed as being, well, only, you know, only a native person can go and pick that plant less. Well, no, that's not true. Right. And I counter it with, in fact, that's an invasive species that came over with white colonialism and actually my ancestors gathered that plant. See, I, it can get really pissy if you get, if you get my point here. I'm trying to tap into your brain on how to handle this stuff. I don't know if I have a great answer for you, Les. I really don't know. I'm, I'm... It's the only reason I brought you here, Terry. I'm expecting <laughs> a good answer on this one well, question. The rest of the interview I'm throwing out, I'm just getting to this point. I, re- I'm really ho- I mean, I, I try and absorb everything around the issues that I see. I, I'm a voracious reader. There's a lot in the news right now. You have to parse that news too, but there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of, of issues going, you know, floating through the news right now. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. I am interrupting you. I get that. But let me couch it this way. Yep. You're an ad writer and now you need to write an ad and not come across as culturally inappropriate. Okay. So the big answer there is I don't write ads anymore, but no, and here, and this is the big answer to this. There should be people of color or different ethnicities in the advertising world. So the creative department of an ad agency should have black and brown people in it so that when you are creating scripts, you have their input. It's interesting, you know, the advertising industry has a lot of uh, different skin colors in it, but not everybody is represented. There's not a lot of black people in Canadian advertising. There's not a lot of indigenous people in Canadian advertising. There's a lot of brown people in Canadian advertising, but it needs to be the, for me, the true answer to that question is the creative department has to reflect the real Canada because then you have everybody 
weighing in on the scripts as opposed to a white guy presuming what somebody from Japan or Indonesia might want to hear or, or, or the language they might want to listen to. Mm. That's the key. The presumption. That's a long time coming. It is. It's also very difficult as an artist to simply be an ally, to write lyrics, for example. You look at someone like Bruce Coburn. I actually asked Bruce Coburn this off microphone and, and his answer was, as always, very poignant and very straight. He just, he just said, can't I be an ally? Because he's written, you know, Red Brother, Red Sister. Right. He's written Stolen Land. Right. He's gone out for causes. So I wondered if he would be more taken to task for some of those things now. Because then you get accused of, oh, what are you, the great white buana all of a sudden? You're here saving us kind of thing. And he, again, with, it, with his tremendous wisdom, it's always good to listen to what yeah. Bruce Coburn has to say. And he's like, well, I... I, I write as I see and as I feel, and I'm. You know, there's no reason I can't be an ally right. in a situation like that. I mean, I and I'm bringing it back to advertising and marketing. It must be very a very delicate thing to dance around in those meeting rooms right now. I would think so. It's a hotter issue now than it was when I was back in the day. There was really not, not a lot of that chit chat about that. Like when you're casting commercials, it wasn't really chit chat about making sure that it was ethnically diverse in the ad. Like there was really not a lot of that going on in, in my time in advertising agencies. I know one big advertising agency, independent agency in Toronto fired a, I'll say a, a high end automobile account because they wanted a black person in the ad and the, and the director of marketing for that high end automobile refused the request, wouldn't allow it. And they resigned the entire account over that decision, which is saying a lot because a lot of salaries, a lot of people are attached to that account. Like when you, when you fire an account, you probably have to let go of a lot of people. But it was one of the earliest times I saw, and this was probably the 90s, I want to say somewhere in the mid to late 90s. That was one of the first times I saw an agency really, like a long time ago now, right? 90s, really stand up for that, that principle that they were willing to walk away from a very lucrative, high-end, prestigious account. Wow. On over one casting in one commercial. Yeah. Who was it that did not want the black individual? The, the automotive account. The, adver- the, chief, the marketing person mm-hmm. in charge mm-hmm. of that account. That's pathetic with a capital P. For my final music selection for the Terry O'Reilly interview, I return to a Terry's choice of a song he seems to enjoy from my catalog. Ironically, not written by me, but instead it's a tune I asked the incredibly talented songwriter Justin Rutledge to pen for my album Bittern Lake, produced by none other than Mike Klink and featuring Taj Mahal and Bonnie Raitt's legendary drummer, Tony Bronigal. With Justin singing, this is Goodbye July. My reflection on the wall of the west, where the wind was my companion, where the reeds sang. 
You know what? Aggressor Adventures, while being the largest liveaboard dive operation in the world, is so much more. They have safaris and excursions to the corners of the globe, exciting opportunities to see vast archaeology, history, and natural wonders. I've been traveling and diving with them for years, and I cannot endorse them enough for being simply the best there is at making sure your worldwide adventure is a safe, comfortable, and exciting one. Take it from a guy who has done a lot of adventuring. Who do I travel with on my vacations? Aggressor Adventures. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. I ran into a situation years ago when one of the things I was pitching was uh, Survivor Woman. 
I felt there needed to be a great show without me in it of a woman teaching survival as I did, not reality, not the reality crap that right. followed, but teaching as I did. You know what their answer to me was? Less women don't write. That's what they stood on. Women don't write. And I kept don't thinking- Don't rate? They won't get ratings. I see. Women won't get the ratings we want. So we're not going to do a show with a woman. And I, to me, it was like, take a risk, take a chance, support this. You need to represent. Let's, let's represent here. There are a lot of amazing women in the world of survival and the, uh, the network wouldn't have it. It's amazing. You know, one of our other podcasts is We Regret to Inform You, the Rejection Podcast. And the current show, which I, I really want people to listen to, is about the Boston Marathon. And it's not about the bombing. It's about how as recently as the 60s, women were not allowed to run in the Boston Marathon. <laughs> they were prohibited from running in the Boston Marathon. And the story in that podcast about these two women that ran anyway, one of them dressed up like a man and ran. I remember that. Yep. And another one just literally, you know, uh, went in with a, a friend of hers, a male friend. He registered them both. He got her her bib number. She didn't have to go to the table. And then she ran. The organizers tr tr attacked her on the, on the Boston Marathon, tried to rip her bib off, which we have the picture of it. But it is such a, an amazing story about how misogyny really was really recent. It's not like it's now, it's mm -hmm. then. Like imagine like, today, over 50% of the women in the Boston, uh, of runners in the Boston Marathon are women, more than 50%, mm -hmm. because of the brave chances these two women took in 1967. It's such a remarkable story to listen to if you're interested. But again, same issue, right? That women don't rate. I want to get us back inside to get warm, to have some stew, to go watch Let It Be by the yes. Beatles. But before we do that, my last question to you is just the, uh, to, to, to end on a wonderful and high note. What's next for the Apostrophe Podcast Company? What's, uh, what's next for Terry O'Reilly, the famous hockey player? <laughs> Which, by the way, sometimes I feel like that's an inside joke just for you and it I. Is. Because most people go, what are you talking about? Well, if you understood in the 70s, there was a famous, and by the way, very tough. He was a brawler very terry o'reilly very tough guy when i work with bobby Orr, i finally got a chance to work with bobby Orr one time he was the doing a voiceover on a tv commercial i was directing for general motors and uh so first of all i had to took everything i had less to remain professional in front oh of bobby gosh Orr. yes you must have been. my as i said my bedroom was a shrine to the man in the 60s what was interesting about bobby Orr was that hold on i've lost my my stream of thought hold on what were we talking about right then sorry uh, I, I don't know. I went somewhere else, Terry. Hold on now. <laughs> Hold on now. Um, oh yes. So I get to meet Bobby Orr. I get to work with him in a commercial. So I walked up to him in the lunchroom because I hadn't been introduced to him yet. I said, hi, Bobby, I'm Terry O'Reilly. Cause I knew he would have some response to that. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, bad skater, bad skater. <laughs> so I had to assume that Terry O'Reilly, the captain of the Bruins was a tough guy who could not skate well. Because that Makes was Bobby, whole, Bobby's whole thing. Makes total yeah, yeah. sense. By the yeah. way, tangents, I, I also met my hero, um, uh, Daryl Sittler. And I ended up being in a fishing charity tournament. And Daryl was there. And I got him to sign a hat. So I have a Daryl Sittler hat signed. Years later, I don't know if you knew this, but I was the voice for the, of the Toronto Maple Leafs for the top 100 Leafs of all time. Really? 
Yep. You, like it was a documentary that you voiced? No, what it was, it was interstitials that they played at every oh. game oh. in the in the in-between periods. And I, I read for a hundred and I had to read them out of order because I wasn't allowed to know who number one was. Oh, interesting. So in doing that, they I got paid, but they also gave me this NHL jersey signed by Daryl Sittler. So it. now I have 27 signed by Daryl Sittler, who, and he was my favorite, <clears throat> and a baseball cap. And uh, so they're, they're, they're hanging at the cottage. Well, you know what? For, the, for many years, I did all the advertising for the Hockey Hall of Fame. So that was a, that was a dream come true for me, Les, because all my heroes were in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Yeah. So I got to work with a lot of them in commercials. Like I got to work with Johnny Bauer and like all these greats. Johnny Bauer, well, right? I, yeah, I told you, and I told you my story of Johnny, that I have a picture of me at eight years of age sitting on Johnny Bauer's lap wow. at the uh, Albany Street Bazaar, right? He was there to sign autographs. And I have a picture of me standing beside Johnny Bauer at the Hockey Hall of Fame when he was 80 something. Wow. I've got both those photos yep. still. Yeah, uh, I loved it. I loved working with the Hockey Hall of Fame. It was just uh, such a treat for me because, and, and the interesting, they had an interesting marketing problem was they couldn't attract young people to it because young people's favorite hockey players are playing hockey. It's us dads that love the Hockey Hall of Fame, right? So the whole marketing task for me at that time was to try and entice young people to want to go. Mm. But for me, it was a dream come true. This is two Canadian boys totally geeking out on hockey right now. <laughs> uh, back to what's next for you. Well, uh, this book is my latest, my third book, the the latest book I've done. It, it's interesting for, for me, this book, Les, because it's not a marketing book. My first two books were, of course, of course. marketing books. This yeah. is not a marketing book. Um, I'd like to do more. I think this kind of, I'm hoping this will open the door that I can do more, pursue more books that are not marketing oriented. And I still love marketing, but I love the fact that I get to stretch. And the Apostrophe Podcast Company, I think we're going to re uh, develop one or two more original podcasts that we have some ideas that we're kicking around. So it's doing well. It's no, you're not going to kick me off the network. We're right? not going to kick. We love you, less. We're not going to kick you off the network. The CBC show and podcast and writing books is really my third act. And I've been quite lucky to have a third act because my first act was really being an advertising writer. Then my second act was being an entrepreneur and having my own company that serviced the, the uh, advertising industry. Then my third act was really having a radio show and writing books. So I've really been fortunate in my career to reinvent myself three times. As you should, I will say to you that our relationship, as fond as it is, is a bit ironic for me because my relationship with marketing and advertising is love-hate. Yep. I hate it as much as I love your take on it. Now that's what, see, I love your take on it, but otherwise I fight against it. A little secret, and here's something you won't know, but you know how you send uh, me and other people on on the Apostrophe Podcast Network, the odd bit, uh, the odd email saying, "Hey, this is something that's working right, right now," or "Hey, you guys might want to consider this." Right. I hate those emails. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, this is what I'm not going to do. Is like in my mind, I'm waiting to see the points you're going to give, and in my mind, I've already concluded. Well, then, because everybody else is doing those, that's exactly what I'm not going to do. Then I read it because I'm not stupid. So then I do read it and I go, oh, damn it. That's a good point. Okay, I better, I better, I better right. do that one. Right. So now like in this, I'll be like, if you like this podcast, you may want to listen to my earlier podcast from season one. That was a good idea. But I don't know what my point is other than I just struggle with anything formulaic, if you will. It yep. just brushes up against me. But that that isn't confined to advertising because there's a lot of bad books and a lot of bad music and a lot of bad TV shows and a lot of bad movies. Right? A lot. 
advertising, you see a lot of it in an evening, but it's, I still think, I wonder if the quotient is almost the same in every artistic endeavor. Oh, I'm sure it is. And it's such a different world for how these artistic endeavors are presented to the public now than ever before. We don't, we won't go down that road. That'll be for a topic of another time. But, um, so I'll leave you with this one last question. Tough one for you. Favorite all time commercial or marketing campaign? Well, again, I'd have to go with the VW campaign. It really is, eh? Yeah, without, without question. There, huh. there have been books created just about that campaign. And I can't think of another campaign that is book-worthy like that one was. Still holds up, still is funny. I still read it and wish I had written every word of that. I, I suffer from envy when I look at that campaign. It is the gold standard for how to advertise for me. Wit, honesty, uh, surprise, working with a real, with a product that really was an underdog that was really had nothing going for it. So they decided to use utter honesty as the thing. And I just loved every single bit of it. And I worship at the altar of that. Everything I do in the, my ad career, I would compare it to that and fall short, but it was always the thing I was grasping for. I lied. Two more questions then. The marketing campaign or the singular commercial that you thought was utterly fantastic and flopped terribly and you just couldn't understand why. Um, can be your own or it can be one that you've, you've, you've noticed. The thing about being in an advertising agency is you don't really ever totally flop. What, because there's so many minds against the campaign, it's usually just a degree of how well did it work. Like it won't work as well as you hoped, but you never get zero sales. Like that, I can't even think of a time when that ever happened where we just, it was a belly flop of epic proportions. But there has been campaigns out there that have been ridiculed to death. There was a campaign for Burger King on, I can't remember what it, what the, the gist of it was. Where's Herb, it was called. It was, Where's the one guy that's never tried a Whopper? Burger King put all of their money and all of their efforts against this campaign and it was ridiculed right off the air. So that happens. Even when Pepsi had one of the Kardashians in a spot maybe a couple of years ago that was kind of tied to, I think it was Black Lives Matter and it was just so preposterous that it was just laughed off mm. and, and people talked about it for like six months. Ouch. So that happens. Here's some research for you. If you haven't listened to it, listen to uh, Jim Gaffigan's I love Jim Gaffigan. Okay. Have you heard, heard his rant on everything is McDonald's? No. Google that one. Okay. Or YouTube that one. Everything is McDonald's. Jim Gaffigan. Let me ask you this last. Here, here is my absolute last. What is your, and I'm, I can't believe I didn't ask this before. What's your best mistake? Read the dedication in the book, Les. Dedicated to the worst boss I ever had, who gave me the best lesson, how not to do it. Explain that one. So... I had a job in my career where the boss hated everything I did. He didn't like my work. He didn't like the kind of writing. He didn't, I didn't like, I spent more than like a couple of years at his shop. They, there was really, there was a lot of talk about being creative, but he would never approve anything creative. For the time I was there, I, I really, I really hated my time there. I really had to drag my caboose into work every morning. It was really a difficult time for me. I almost lost confidence in my ability in the marketing world while there. I eventually quit the job 
my next job is at this big advertising agency where I meet my mentor and it all turns around. But when I look back on that job, I learned so much. I had, I learned so many lessons that I could then apply that when I started my own company, I could apply to my company and it was how not to do it. So it was how to treat creative people, right? How to inspire them, how to really care about your client's business, how to brand your own, like everything that wasn't happening there. I, I knew how to apply it when it came to my turn. So when I was in the middle of it, which is so much a, a part of every chapter of that book, when I was in the middle of it, it was pain. But when I got out of it, it was gain. I say that's one of my best mistakes was taking that job because I learned so much years later that I could apply. Let's go watch the Beatles. Let's do it. <sighs> Thanks, Terry. Thanks, Les. Thanks for having me. And so that's it for my five-part interview with advertising legend, creator of the Apostrophe Podcast Network, and my friend, Terry O'Reilly. If you liked it, then check out the rest of the interview, or maybe my interview with music producer legend, Mike Klink. Terry has a brand new book out, my best mistake. It is a brilliant take on the art of moving on from and making the most out of your biggest slash best mistake. This podcast is, as the saying used to go, brought to you by Aggressor Adventures. Choose your adventure. Surviving Life with Les Stroud is presented by the Apostrophe Podcast Network and is mixed by Keith Ullman. You're surviving life with me, Les Stroud. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Survivor Man Les Stroud, as I have hundreds of videos there and more going up every week. From Survivor Man Archive to Bigfoot to Wild Harvesting Tips to Urban Disaster Survival. It's all there and it's all free. My brand new series, Wild Harvest, featuring local foraging and turning those wild edibles into sumptuous dishes, is now on National Geographic Asia, PBS stations in the United States, and Cottage Life Television in Canada. The brand new special, Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud, is now on a PBS station near you in the United States or on my YouTube channel. And my brand new children's book, Wild Outside, written for your kids. It's all about getting your kids into the out of doors. And it's out now. Google it. I'm an easy find on Google for those and so much more that I produce during any given year, no matter what's happening on the world stage. We'll figure this life out together. Cue that rip and harmonica solo, Keith. <laughs>